Hear now the word of God. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's ask God to do that for us. Father, uh, apart from your blessing... We would misunderstand your word, we would see things that are not there, and we would miss the things that are there. But even then, apart from your Spirit's help, we would not love what you say to us in the Scriptures. So then, would you send your Spirit to accomplish what we, ourselves, in our own selves, cannot do? Lord, you've said it in your word. The flesh accomplishes nothing. The spirit is everything. We pray for your spirit's help today. We ask these things coming to you as helpless people who have nothing to do but beg for your help. Would you help us this morning? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I was trying to think, you know, it's always dangerous to make a statement that's very universal about Jesus or about Scripture, but I was trying to think of all the things that happened to Jesus in Scripture, I think the thing that happens most to him is people coming up to him and talking to him. It feels like every, every sermon that we've done in this Matthew series has been somebody coming up to Jesus and asking him questions, confronting him, coming to him with inquiries, coming to him uh, with needs. Sometimes you have the hurting and sick coming to Jesus for help. Sometimes you see searchers coming to Jesus, like when Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. Uh, Sometimes they're extremely aggressive. Sometimes they are armed crowds coming to confront Jesus. but there are all of these moments where Jesus is approached by people. Almost the entirety of the Gospels is filled with these moments. But there is something about today's, today's experience that Jesus has that's different from the others. Because this is one of only a couple of moments where someone speaks to Jesus and gets ignored. Think of all of the passages where people come up to Jesus this is the only one I can think of where, he's, where he responds with silence, except perhaps when he's being uh, interrogated uh, by the Jewish leaders. And so for that reason, this passage is, to me, extremely interesting, and it's worth examining, right? I want to give away the ending, though. I, I often do that. I want to give away the ending. I'm not trying. This is not an Agatha Christie novel. I don't want to 
save the mystery for the end or something like that. Jesus in his ministry has this very clear sense of what he is there for, which is behind the silence that he has here. Uh, He knows what he is here for. He also knows what he is not here for. Um, Unlike so many people today who struggle with with a sense of purposelessness and and directionlessness, uh, on the extreme end of that is Jesus, who is someone who repeatedly says what he came for, why he came. And, And so we see that what Jesus does here today is certainly curious to us, at least I think at first it's very curious to us. It's hard for us to picture Jesus ignoring a hurting person. But even in that, we're going to see there's more here going on than you initially realize. So not only does today's passage help us understand Jesus' own sense of his purpose, his own sense of his ministry, why on earth did he come, but it's also an opportunity to see true gospel humility in the way this woman approaches Jesus. There is, there's an opportunity here for us to reflect upon the way we approach God, on the way that we come to him, on the way that we make requests of him. And so what we have here is jam-packed. Um, so let's get right to it. Our, our three points this morning are call, silence, and persistence. And they're just going to be woom, 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 right through the text, one after the other. Um, we're just going to use these as framing devices to sort of help us digest what's going on in this encounter between Jesus and this Canaanite woman. And so, so first we see the call. This is right at the beginning in verses 21 and 22. Look, what, look at verse 21 first, though, very briefly. It says, And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. So Jesus was in the Jewish territory, and he withdrew into the northwest, into what was generally Gentile territory. Why did he do that? Why did he withdraw? Well, you know, I, I wasn't here this last week, and you may not remember what happened the week before, and I know a lot of us were traveling and have been doing a lot of things in the months of June and July and, and even August, so I just want to give you an idea what was going on before this. Um, in the text, if you have your Bibles and you let your eye just sort of drift at the headings up above, sometimes it's nice to orient yourself What you see over the previous passages is Jesus is engaged in these aggressive interactions with the scribes and Pharisees um, because he's been doing these healings. And so when it says Jesus withdrew, it tells us us two things. Maybe it tells us more than that, but I want to point out two things that it tells us. One, it tells us that he physically is getting away from the animosity that he has been experiencing so far. Um, it is not yet time for Jesus to face his enemies head on yet. He's going to. The, the end of Matthew is coming, and when the end of Matthew comes, you're going to see that Jesus doesn't constantly retreat, but it's time for him to retreat right now. Um, if he stays in the heat of conflict, things will ramp up and increase, and it's not time for that yet. Um, so his, his removal is geographic, in other words. He's, he's literally leaving one physical location. But I want you to think deeper than that. It's not just about, well, he went from here to here. Isn't that interesting? There's something about him removing himself that is also symbolic. Jesus is rejecting what he has experienced so far. Um, They resist. They resist. They fight back. And Jesus says, fine, there are other places I can go. And so there's a a spiritual element to Jesus' withdrawal. 
Um, scripture uses this kind of spiritual language in this way. And um, if you look at Ezekiel 5, God, is, God tells Israel something. He says, because you've defiled my sanctuary with all your detestable things, therefore I will withdraw. My eye will not spare, and I will have no pity. And so, you know, the, the departure of God is a form of judgment. To have God leave, to have him leave you, to have him leave the place where you are, is a terrible form of judgment. That's what Ezekiel is telling us here. It's, it's telling Israel the worst possible thing. Therefore, I will withdraw. It's the presence of God only that has protected Israel. And now he says, fine, I will leave. And that's what's happening here. God is withdrawing from the presence of his people and he's going to a people who were not his people. And we see in scripture what happens when God withdraws himself. One of the places you see it really clearly, a, a very famous passage, if you, if you could call it that, is from Romans chapter 1. Um, Paul in Romans 1 talks about this language of God giving people over to their own desires. Giving people over to their own sin. Right? When God gives someone the sinful thing that they want, it is not a reward. It is, not a, pun- it is a punishment. It is not a reward. It's not a good thing. It, it's a curse when God gives you the sinful thing that you want. Um, we oftentimes have conflicting desires. We have things we want, things we don't want. Um, God very often, it is so good of God to give us what we need and not to give us what we want. Um, I was thinking uh, this week, I, I've been reading a book uh, called The Great Dechurching. And in that book, the authors are talking about young people who leave the church. And part of the reason why they leave the church is they simply uh, get old enough to where they can make their own decisions. And they decide, well, this isn't relevant for me anymore. Uh, and so I'm not going to go. Now, there are lots of factors in why that decision gets made. But one of the things that you find is that for many young people, they feel like church is something that they were forced to do, and they were never, it was never explained to them why this is important in the first place. It was important to, to their parents, and the parents hoped that by osmosis, that it would become important to their children. And so I just want to speak to young people in the church. If you're, a, if you're a kid in the church, you're a young person in the church, and you're here at church because your parents want to come, you may love it. In fact, I hope you do. Um, but you may not. When I was a kid, I wanted to play all day and watch DuckTales. Um, that's what I wanted to do. And when I was younger, now I went to a church that had pews, and so um, probably up until the age of eight, I had one job, and my job was, don't get any ideas, okay? But my job was, sneak off to where the grown-ups have the coffee and eat as many sugar cubes as I can. And so, like, the adults would come out of church. If you ever wonder why I have dental problems, it all goes back. And and so the adults would come out of church, and they'd be so excited about their coffee, and they'd be like, what happened to all the sugar cubes? Uh, I'm just standing over there, like, my teeth are hurting. (laughs) I would crawl under the pews, back to front, you know. um, They couldn't catch me. I was too fast. Um, uh, when I was a kid, I did not go to church for the worship service. I didn't go for the music. I didn't go for the sermons. I went because my parents said that I needed to go, and so I did. Um, and if, at that age, if, if God had said, hey, Adam, you can have exactly what you want, then I 
I would have stayed home and eat and watched the Ducktales, and I would have eaten the sugar cubes. You don't even need uh, cereal if you have sugar cubes. You can just get the sugar straight. And think of where I would be. It's a comical image, but think about where I'd be if God had given me what I wanted. Um, if you are here and your parents brought you and you didn't want to come here, I want you to know something. God is giving you what you need, but not what you want right now. Um, you might not feel it right now. You might not want to be here, but, uh, but do you know what? It would be bad. It would be horrible if God gave you what you want in that case, right? Our souls need the word of God even when we don't realize it. And, and even at that young age, I was, I was hearing the word of God and it was, it was impacting my soul so that when I became a teenager and I was considering giving up atheism, many of the things that I heard when I was younger came back to my heart and many of the songs that I heard in church came back to me as well. They had an impact on me. Um, you should know that just because you want something, it doesn't mean it's good. It doesn't mean it's good for you. Um, for some of us, there would be nothing worse than for God to give us what we want at any given moment. We should be very grateful that God doesn't give us what we want all the time. He is so gracious that often he gives us exactly what we need and that we might not actually feel like. By the way, I do hope you like coming to church. I hope you like hearing God's word and I hope you like spending time with your friends after church. But you might not. And, and so maybe this will speak to you, right? Thank God this morning that he doesn't withdraw his presence from you, even when you want him to. Um, thank God that he doesn't always give us what we want. Well, the religious leaders really want something. And what they really want is for Jesus to buzz off. That's what they want. And so for the moment, Jesus is giving them what they want. He withdraws. You don't, you don't want me? Fine, I will go away from you. It's a terrible judgment to have Jesus leave, whether they realize it or not. That's what's happening. They're being judged right now as Jesus leaves and goes to this Gentile territory. Here's what's interesting. He goes to the Gentile territory and the tone changes. The things that people care about suddenly change because think about, think about what he's been dealing with, right? Jesus has been arguing about Jewish traditions and ceremonies and rules and practices, right? How do you wash? What's the Sabbath really about? And now it's almost like he's, he's boom, he's out in the real world. Notice how the concerns change as he leaves the Jewish territory. Now, now the debates aren't over ceremonies and traditions. The worries in the Gentile territory are way more simple and way more basic. Uh, health and life. How, will, how are we going to eat? How are we going to live? How do we survive? And so Jesus, Jesus moves away from the presence of the Jewish leaders and the Gentiles benefit from it. Uh, they wouldn't normally be thought of as people that receive God's grace at this point in redemptive history. Case in point, this Canaanite woman. And just as a reminder, um, I don't know if you, you do the family worship guide that we give out, but, but one of the readings that we did was from the book of Judges. And that reading in the book of Judges, part of why, why we selected those, those readings from Judges was, I wanted you to see tribe after tribe after tribe of Israel failing to expel the Canaanites from their land. Every one of those passages ends with the Canaanites and the Israelites living side by side together to this day. To this day. And so now, 
here we have one of their descendants, this woman who was not removed back during the time of Joshua and Judges. They're still around, and now they're living side by side with the Canaanites and the Israelites. And oftentimes what happens? The Canaanites lead the Israelites astray. They, they follow after other gods. So by the time of Jesus, the Canaanites are still around, And the important takeaway is that this woman is not of the people of God. She is as Gentile as they come. Now, I want you to look at verse 22. It says, Behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. I want you to to see two things about how she approaches Jesus First, I want you to notice she, she's very reverent in the way she approaches him. She comes to Jesus asking for help, but, but she does it with use, using these titles, right? She calls him Lord. Um, that's not the name Yahweh. This is the term Lord, like it's a term of respect. It's like calling somebody sir. Um, she's speaking to him very respectfully. She's saying, please, sir. Um, but she also calls him by a messianic title, the, the, the kind of title you would only use of somebody who is the savior of Israel. Um, here she is, she's, she's not Jewish, but she knows about Jewish beliefs. She calls him son of David. So she, even though she's an outsider to the people of Israel, she, she understands there's a promised Messiah coming who will sit on David's throne. And that's how she approaches Jesus. So she's not, she's not ignorant. She doesn't go to him like he's just a magician or something like that. Um, she has a sense of who he is. Um, and notice this. She has this sense that Jesus owes her nothing. And so she shows the highest respect and awe that she possibly can to him. She is approaching him with reverence. I was thinking about this because... Um, I, I grew up, I did not grow up in the Presbyterian church. I grew up in every church. Uh, I grew up in a charismatic background. I, I grew up in a, a background where we sang hymns. Uh, I grew up in a background where we sang uh, uh, Maranatha praise band songs. And then when I went off to college in Phoenix, we went to mega churches. So I've kind of been everywhere and I've sort of seen every, it feels like every kind of church. I had friends in Pentecostal churches that really thought they could get me. They, they did not succeed. Um, but, but when we lived in Phoenix, you know, we went to this church where before the service starts, there is a line of people to going into the Starbucks in the hallway. And, and, and you can hear the milk being steamed through the whole service. Like if somebody wants to get up in the middle of the service and go... Uh, buy some coffee in the lobby, they can do that. Or they can go browse the bookstore and just wander back in when they want. It's very ultra casual. And I know maybe there are times where you wish, man, I wish, I wish we were that casual. I'd love, to be, I'd love to be so casual like that I could hear the milk steaming during the service, you know? And you just kind of wander in the way, like if you go to a, a rock concert, you can just come in and find your seat when you want and you can leave when, when you want. Um, uh, if you gotta go to the bathroom, go to the bathroom. I'm not making a comment on that. But the, the but but we sometimes we crave that super casual environment. We wish that it was more casual. And I, I wonder though if you if you sense what I sense that when it comes to worship, I, since I've seen it all, one thing that that really struck me was that maybe casual isn't always good for us. Um, 
and, and I'm not talking about dress. I'm talking about our attitude as we come into worship. Um, you know, sometimes you might think, man, the, the songs here are very, they're very grave and weighty, and they're songs about God's glory. I want to I wanna hear a happy song that kind of cheers the heart, and I think we have those too, but there is something about the reverence and the weight of God and who he is that ought to rest upon us because he's not one of our peers. You know, God is not uh, just another person like all of us. Um, he is the creator of the universe who is lofty and glorious and who deserves high worship. And he does deserve our focus and our sense of our seriousness. It's a, I think it's a healthy thing for the people of God. And, and I think this woman has that sense about her as she's approaching Jesus here. She has this sense of the importance of the man she is talking to. This is a healthy thing for us. I think this woman models it well. I want you to also note this woman's sorrow. She says, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon, right? So she uses this word oppression to describe what's happening to her daughter. She uses the word severe to describe it. She wants us to know what the oppression is like. Um, you, as a parent, I, I have a feeling many in this room have been parents and uh, as a parent, you, you perhaps can relate to that parental concern this woman has for her child. You know, when your child is hurting, you hurt. You, you can't help it. You, you can't help but empathize when your child is hurt. Well, this child isn't just hurting, right? This is a child who is oppressed by a terrifying and mysterious force that surely this woman doesn't really understand. Uh, I think we barely understand it, if we're honest. You know, as a parent, you know how to fix a scraped knee. You know what to do if your child is hungry. Uh, these things aren't mysterious to us. But what would you do if a demonic force had changed your child from someone that you knew and loved to someone unrecognizable? How would you fix that? Who do you go to? How do, you, how do you fix that? If you're, if you're like most people, you have no clue where to start. What's the beginning of an answer even look like? It's, it's sort of the definition of being at the end of your rope, isn't it? Like if Jesus can't help her, who, who possibly could? Who would she go to? This is a woman who's desperate. It's a, it's a woman who's afraid. And yet she approaches Jesus with reverence and sorrow and self-composure you, you can sh see that she actually is performing what we would call intercessory prayer here. She's, she's interceding on behalf of her daughter. Intercessory prayer, intercessory prayer. It's when the other person perhaps cannot pray for themselves, doesn't have the strength to pray for themselves, doesn't have the presence of mind or the ability to pray for themselves. And so you say, I will step in, O oh God. I will talk to you on this person's behalf. And in this in this worship, this woman is bringing her daughter before the Lord. And might I just say, this Gentile woman's actions here, I think they remind us of the need to pray for our own children, to lift our own children up before the Lord. Um, your children could still be at home. Uh, they could still be under your roof, under your care, or they might be outside of your home. One of the things I've learned in the last few weeks after we took Genesis off to school is you start to feel that fellowship with those other parents whose kids are no longer at home, and they don't even have to be in college. Uh, you talk to somebody who's a grown-up, and their children are grown, and they're out of the home too, and they tell you, I never stop thinking about my kids. I never stop worrying about my kids. The reality is it's always appropriate for us to intercede 
with the Lord on behalf of our children. Um, that's one of the things that the author of Job tells us about Job that makes him such a godly man. He's always praying for his kids and making sacrifices for his kids. He is concerned for them even though they're outside of the home now. This woman is interceding for a child. And so we as parents, we have so much to learn from her. This is one of those things that we should learn from her as well. Now that doesn't mean you don't have to pray if you don't have kids, right? If you don't have children, pray for other children in your family. You can pray for other children in the church, right? This, this need to bring children before the Lord never ends in this life. Second today, we see the silence of Jesus. And I know this is the most puzzling part. I, I think it is anyway. You look at verse 23 to 24 again, look at this. It says, but he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, send her away, for she's crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. If I'm just being perfectly honest with you, this just doesn't sound like Jesus. This, to me, this do, my initial reaction to this is, what on earth is going on? He, he always seems so quick to receive people in the rest of Scripture. Uh, Jesus is, is gentle and lowly. He's, he's loving and patient. And here we, he sees this woman coming with reverence. He sees her interceding, not even selfishly for herself. She's interceding for her little one. And the text says Jesus did not answer her a word. The way, the way Matthew says it, he, he wants us to feel it too. He wants us to. He, it is not lost on him that Jesus doesn't give her anything, that she gets the silent treat, treatment from Jesus. The only thing that seems to move Jesus is actually his disciples, right? The disciples, they beg him to, to, to answer her. And you think, oh, thank you, disciples. You're bringing, bringing this woman to Jesus. You're pointing out her need. And no, they almost seem to be annoyed with her. Um, send her away. Um, some commentators talk about maybe they're asking Jesus to give her what she's asking for so she will go away. They don't say that. They really just want her to go away is the way that the text reads. Um, this woman is so persistent that they seem to be growing irritated with her. and she's, she's irritating them. She's, she's hounding them. Something has to happen. And this is the part where you just say, what's going on here, Jesus? What am I not understanding? And I hope that that is the way you would phrase the question because that is the right question to ask. The question is not what's wrong with you, Jesus. The question is what is going on that I don't understand? That's the right question. We should not assume that Jesus is being cruel. We should not assume that he is indifferent. Nor should we assume that Jesus is just too busy to talk to this woman in fact, this passage is a, is a lesson in assumptions. We make all kinds of assumptions about what's going on here. Um, and we maybe are tempted to judge Jesus, harshly even, by this passage. It's a great lesson for us when it comes to assuming things about people, assuming motivations. Um, I once knew of a situation where someone decided the pastor of their church was... This is not a story about me, by the way. Um, <laughs> But somebody decided that the, the pastor of the church was stuck up and arrogant, that he had a superiority complex. Um, the reason why they had decided this, well, this will sound incredible, but it's true. Um, as this person was driving past the pastor on the road one day, they saw the pastor, they were crossing, and they waved at him. 
And he did not wave back, and he drove right past. And it was then and there this person had settled in their mind that this pastor was unlikable and didn't like them. He, uh, he didn't wave because he was unfriendly, and he didn't care to. Well, you can guess what was really going on there. That wasn't a very fair attitude for the church member to have. Sometimes we assume the wrong reasons for why someone does what they do. Um, you know, we can't pry into the inner workings of the mind, but we also want to make sense of what happens. So when we see gaps, we fill them in with something that makes sense to us. If we're feeling insecure or we're feeling particularly negative toward that person, the thing we fill in those gaps with is often stuff that's not true, but it certainly makes the other person look bad and maybe it makes it look like they don't like us very much. And I can tell you, the word for that is assuming. And I can tell you that that a great deal of our conflict in the church and in our lives could be avoided if we were regularly willing to stop and say, wait, this thing that I am thinking about this other person, do I know that it's true or am I just coming up with a plausible explanation? Maybe I should just go talk to this person and find out what's really going on. And in the case of this church member, if they had asked the pastor why he didn't wave, he would have learned that the pastor was extremely distracted and just didn't notice the member when he was driving past. Um, It was only years later that the pastor even found out where the church member's grudge came from and this grudge that they had been holding for years. Um, What are we misunderstanding here about Jesus? Right? Jesus is the pastor that's not waving at the moment, right? We're like, what's going on? <laughs> Why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you responding to her? You talk to everybody else. Um, first, I want to say Jesus does seem indifferent, right? If you just, on the face of it, you look at the passage, um, he looks like the pastor driving by and ignoring somebody, right? But that doesn't mean that he is um, in fact, there are way better ways of understanding what's going on here that reflect far more positively on Jesus. Um, R.T. France is one commentator. He says that Jesus is actually doing this with a bit of a playful wink. He's, he says he's actually, Jesus is giving this woman an opportunity to show faith and model persistence for the disciples to see. That there's more happening here than just ignoring her. Um, he does give an answer. Right? He does eventually give an answer, which we'll look at in the next point. But France is suggesting that this is a type of testing. And, and I think that it is fair for us to assume something like that. There's something intentional on Jesus' part here where she needs to hear and learn something. The disciples need to hear and learn something. She, clearly, this woman needs the opportunity to express her faith more deeply. And Jesus is allowing that to happen. I think that's at least part of what's happening. It doesn't mean it's the whole answer but it's part of what's going on here. But, but second, let me say, there are good reasons why Jesus is not quick to take up this woman's request. And we don't have to guess. And again, like I said, like we find out that, that our assumptions are wrong oftentimes just by talking to the person. Jesus doesn't leave us guessing, right? He speaks in verse 24. He explains himself. He says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. If you want an interpretation of Jesus' silence, just ask him. Here you go. Jesus is telling you what's going on here. His silence is driven by his sense of mission. 
Jesus has a different mission than to go to the Gentiles and perform miracles for them. And we're going to see in time that the gospel that the gospel does go out to all the world beyond the borders of the Jewish people, including all the regions of the Gentiles. Right? The, the doors of the kingdom of God will fly wide open, bringing in the Gentiles. That's what the whole second half of the book of Acts is, is those doors being flung wide. But Jesus is also saying that that time is not yet in his ministry. Jesus has a sense, like the author of Ecclesiastes says, there's a time for everything under heaven. The Apostle Paul draws attention to the fact that Jesus died at the right time. Paul says, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. See, when things happen in redemptive history matters. The timing of these things matters. Doing things when they're supposed to take place is part of the gradual unveiling of God's purpose in this world. Jesus knows that. The progress of the gospel means that first the gospel comes to the Jews. Only once the Jews have rejected the gospel does it go out to the Gentiles. In Paul's ministry, he keeps that pattern up. He goes to the Jews first, then to the Gentiles. Why? Because the gospel going to the Gentiles was a consequence of the Jewish people's rejection of the promise. They need an opportunity to reject it so that it can be taken to the rest of the world. Um, I wish there was more time this morning to talk about the principles under this, but maybe I think it's best for us to content ourselves with knowing that Jesus does not despise this woman. He loves the Father, and he loves the mission. And he loves the mission that God has given to him so much that he will even allow himself to come to harm in order to make that happen. So Jesus does not hate this woman, but he loves the mission of the Father. He loves the mission that he has to be a savior to the Jew first and only then to the Gentiles. Third this morning, we see something amazing, something that moves Jesus very deeply. What we see is persistence. And that's our third point this morning. Jesus has just said he came for the lost sheep of Israel And this woman responds in verse 25. It says, But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Um, So what we are reading here is really a debate, in a sense. (laughs) This woman is debating Jesus on why he should help her. Um. Jesus has already seen her reverence, and he's also seen her, her agony. But now he sees her worship him, right? She is, she is kneeling before him. I mentioned before, I think Jesus has been testing this woman. He's been giving her an opportunity to glorify God. He's been giving her an opportunity to express her faith in a way that puts his Jewish listeners to shame. Right? This woman is actually incredible. We... We sometimes talk about coming to Jesus. We talk about repenting of our sin, of coming to Jesus with empty hands. This woman shows us in action what it looks like to come with empty hands. If you ask the question, what does it look like to come to Jesus in absolute humility, with nothing in your hands, with nothing to commend yourself, look at her. She has no leverage over Jesus. She has no argument. She has nothing she can say to manipulate him into doing what she asks. She only has an appeal to his kindness. All she can say is, Lord, help me. 
She isn't just humble. She's persistent. She calls him Lord twice. Twice she begs him because it's all she's got. Begging is all she's got. It's the only method. It's the only approach she can use. And in response, Jesus says, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Again, it's another moment in the passage where we think he's being insulting. It sounds like he's being antagonistic, that he's, he's being rude to her. The point here is not to insult her. It's not even to insult the Gentiles. The point is to explain why it is that he is focusing on Jewish people in his ministry and not them. They are his primary mission field. They are the children at the table. They're the ones he's focusing on. The Gentiles may sit outside the household of humanity, may, not, may sit within the household of humanity, but they do not sit at the table the way the Jews do. And so she responds and sees herself as a fellow human being, even if she's not a Jew. She says, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Some commentators try to help this conversation along. They say, well, the word that they use is for domesticated little dogs. Even in Israel, they had dogs, and they had domesticated dogs, uh, and they had cute little dogs, too. Um, the, word, the word dog here is the, the diminutive. It's a word we use for something that's little, right? Like in Spanish, you have the word poquito. That means just small, tiny. Um, it's something like that. Here, even little dogs, she says, sit at the master's table. Um, this isn't cruel of Jesus. The language here, it seems to be saying even these, these household dogs still get to eat something, right? Um, I still think this would have been a hard thing to say to someone, right? He's saying to her, I'm not focusing on you right now. I'm supposed to focus over there, right? This is not an easy thing to hear one way or the other. But here's what's more important. The woman doesn't disagree with him. Like, we're so set on him not offending her that we don't realize she's got no argument here. She's not, she's not arguing with the premise of the illustration or the metaphor here. Remember, we are listening to a debate. Jesus, why should you help me? Think of all the debates Jesus has with people. This is the only one I can think of where Jesus loses. Um, how does she beat Jesus in debate? How does she do it? What's her winning strategy? Notice this, she never disagrees with him. That's a great way to win me over anytime, right? Don't disagree with me. Um, she never disagrees with him. She says, she, she instead wins him over by telling him he's right. Um, if, that's, if you want to be saved, that's actually how you go to God too, right? Lord, you are right about me. That's how we start. Lord, you are right about me. This woman doesn't have any sense of entitlement whatsoever. She doesn't think she's owed anything. She has no pride to speak of. She, she doesn't even complain at the comparison Jesus makes between her and the dog. In her mind, she is a dog. She is a, a lowly dog. She has nothing to do but beg. And the owner has nothing to do but go his own way. That's why she begs him. Uh, every, every morning I have a banana. And my dog has very keen hearing, incredible hearing. And his favorite thing in the whole world is, is a banana. And so like the other day, uh, the dog was like in the living room and I was in the kitchen and I was like, I don't like him standing under my feet while I eat a banana. It's, it's annoying. I, and so I tear off that banana so quietly and you hear, and he comes running in. Like he heard that banana tear. And there is nothing that he wants except that banana. And I am so determined. I'm like, no, this is my 
this is my banana. You have, a, you have dog food over here. And, uh, and Percy, though, he will sit there, and he knows not to bark, but he will sit there and he'll go. He'll just sit there and lick his lips. And then if you're, like, really stubborn and you're like, no, I'm finishing this, uh, then he will start to kind of do a, huh. Yes. Not enough to get in trouble, because it's, if it's a bark, he won't do it. Uh, huh. I'll like, keep eating. And anyway, it's a comical five-minute joust between the two of us. And I get to the end, and I always think, oh, fine. And I give him the end of the banana. Now he always knows that it works. Um, <laughs> he has no argument. Uh, he's just, he just hopes that I will give it to him if, I, if he whines enough. Um, he has no real sense of entitlement, honestly. He, he doesn't think he's owed it, but he always hopes that he'll get some. He always hopes that he'll get some. And, I, you know, so many people in our day, I think, naturally have a sense of entitlement. We're sort of, it's just sort of taught to us in schools. It's taught to us from childhood. We're special. We're important. We should be getting all of these things. And then here's the part where you might start to get uncomfortable and you think, yeah, pastor, talk about those, I was going to say those millennials, but like millennials are in our 40s. So talk about those millennials and those Gen Z and all those others underneath are so entitled. Look, we're all entitled. Um, we're all entitled. Um, this is not the part where I start talking about other people. We all have areas where we're proud where we think we've earned our way, where we th- think we deserve the benefit of the doubt, we are not naturally going to notice those things about us. We may think those are just fair judgments, uh, and, and we'll need the Spirit's help to pinpoint those areas in our lives. What we need is not more ways to criticize other entitled people. What we really need is for the Spirit to shine a light on us and take a scalpel to our pride. That's what we need. Um, are you quick and ready to admit your sin and beg Jesus for his grace? Are you willing to be called a dog by God? Now she wins the debate, as I said. Here's how she wins the debate, by humbling herself and kneeling at his feet. You see, she agrees with his premise. She agrees with the premise. She does not agree with the implied conclusion. Yes, Jesus, that's right. I I am a dog and, and I do deserve nothing, but that doesn't have to stop you from helping me. That's what she, that's the argument. Yes, I'm a dog. I deserve nothing, but that doesn't have to stop you from being merciful to me. This is an incredible picture of gospel faith because it is faith given in absolute humility, lacking any entitlement at all. She doesn't argue from her greatness. She doesn't even argue from the quality of her faith. She argues from her lowliness. She says, it's not that I deserve your help, it's that I need your help. That's the argument. What a huge difference. She argues from her lowliness and her need rather than from her entitlement and her worth. And that's how she wins Jesus over in this argument. Isn't that amazing? I am a dog. All the more reason I need your help. What about you? Are you strong or are you weak? Uh, Are you rich or are you poor? What do you come to, to God like? Do you come charging into his presence like the entitled religious leaders with something to prove and an argument to win? Or or do you you come creeping in with meekness like my dog hoping he's going to get some banana, right? 
are, are you willing to admit hard things about yourselves? Or, or immediately when God says things like, you're a sinner, do you think, well, this isn't for me? Are you willing to hear God point the accusing finger at you when you deserve it? When you and I hear the gospel, here's what, here's what happens. We, are, we hear hard things about ourselves. If you hear the gospel, if you hear someone say they're telling you the gospel and they only tell you good things about yourself, you are not hearing the gospel. Because the gospel has to have bad news so that the good news makes sense. Uh, when we hear the gospel, we're going to hear God tell us that apart from Christ, we aren't righteous. That doesn't feel good. We're going to hear in the gospel of God tell us that by nature we're children of wrath. What a horrible thing to say. What a horrible thing to hear. Uh, when we hear the gospel, we're going to hear God tell us that we should come to him like this woman today in a position of weakness and not strength. We're, we're coming to him in poverty, not in riches. Now, just because we come to him bowed down like a dog, like someone who will admit that they don't deserve his mercy, it doesn't, doesn't mean he keeps us there, right? There, there is so much grace in Jesus. Look at how Jesus answers her, right? He doesn't say, now crawl out of the room. Your, your daughter's fine. Get out of here. Uh, make sure not to get off the floor until you've left the building, right? He doesn't, he doesn't do that at all. He doesn't just give her what she asks for, but he actually honors this woman, he, he lifts her up. He says, great is your faith. She thinks little of herself. She really has nothing to lose. And she has a great vision of Jesus. Great is her faith. Great faith is not about having a mass quantity of faith. It's not about having potent faith. It's about having a powerful Savior. That's what she has. She has a powerful Savior. If you come to Christ, Scripture says something similar about you you know, Paul in Ephesians 2 says something, something almost startling about the person who comes to Jesus like a dog. He says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Um, two things as we close. First, it's God's rich mercy that moves him to love us. And gives himself for us. Right? It is not us. It is not you. It is not your worth. It is not something you have done. It's not something you've said. It's not something you've given. It's not a ceremony you were part of. It is his rich mercy. First thing. Second thing. We come to him bowed down. But Paul says he raises us up. He raises us up. Like he raised this woman up. Right? We come to him kneeling and he lifts us up, up, up into the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You see, Christ's agenda is not a people who go around cursing themselves, saying, woe is me, I'm so terrible, woe is me, I'm pathetic and horrible, I'm so disgusting. That is not what a Christian is meant to be. No, his agenda is for people who have nothing beautiful in themselves, but in Christ they are extraordinary and lifted up, and exalted, and glorified. And they share in all of those things because they are in Jesus. That is a big difference, Christian. Right? Christian, you, I'm about to sound contradictory here. Christian, you are amazing. In yourself, you are nothing. But in Christ, you are beautiful, and high and exalted. And the Father looks at you, and he sees nothing but goodness. And he sees nothing but righteousness. In Christ, you are glorious and blessed. In Christ, you are beloved and you're treasured by the Father. 
Great is your faith. Perhaps, but greater still is your Savior. Let's pray together. Yes, Father, you call us to come before you like this woman came to Jesus. With humility. With empty hands. With no leverage at all except our need. But you also raise us up in Christ. And so I pray that we would all approach you with humility, understanding who we are in ourselves, but also recognizing that in Christ, you lift us up into the heavenly places. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.